VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, April the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in for the producer's chair this morning. We're looking forward to speaking with you, so Fonce will be the voice on the other end of the line when you call. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So let's head to Vegas uh, at the Men's World Curling Championships. Brad Guju and Rink, of course, as Walker, Gallant, and Nichols, and Guju, 4-0. Not really in top form at this moment in time, scraping out the wins, but hey, a win is a win is a win. They're 4-0, the only undefeated team, or Rink, in the championships. Interestingly, three-time defending champion Sweden skipped by Nicholas Edin. They're one and two. Lost a pair yesterday. So it goes you the boys in good shape. They need to pick it up a notch, though, as well, I would have to say. And I think uh, Guju and the boys would acknowledge that. They all curled over 80% last night in their victory, but not what they would be normally used to performing. Okay. Uh, good weekend for Dawson Mercer from Bay Roberts, of course, playing for the New Jersey Devils. He had a three-point weekend, a couple of assists yesterday. He is flying. He's fourth in the team in scoring. Absolutely beauty. And the Growlers, boy, oh, boy, weekend sweep to clinch a playoff spot. Back-to-back shutouts Friday and Saturday. Another win yesterday. Gave up one goal over the course of the weekend. Zach O'Brien uh, beats his, or breaks his own record for a single-season number of points. I think he's got like 71 at this moment in time, so he's having a great season. Again, and congratulations to all participants, and especially the winners in some of the provincial hockey tournaments that took place over the weekend. You want to chime in and give us an update? I see the junior finals are going to Game 7. I think that game is coming up Friday night out in Bay Roberts. So you want to give me an update on any of those fronts? Absolutely happy to have you on the program to talk about it today. Now, there's been a lot of talk about NATO in the recent past. And curiously, it was today in history, in 1949, that the North Atlantic Treaty Pact was signed by some 12 nations to create NATO. That organization now, the defensive alliance that it is, has grown to 30 countries. And lots of talk about NATO, of course, is how the NATO countries are reacting and supporting Ukraine with the ongoing invasion and the crimes against humanity and the war crimes being committed by the atrocities of the Russians and, of course, led by their tyrannical thug, Putin, you want to talk about it. Let's go. A couple of quick more happy notes before we move on. I want to say good morning and congratulations on the arrival of the first child to our program director, Greg Smith, and his wife, Jennifer. So the baby, Levi Fitzgerald Smith, was born on Saturday. Congratulations to the happy couple and their beautiful new baby, Levi. And I heard Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey mention the fact that it's our lead engineer, Jason Murphy's birthday today. Happy birthday, Murph. He does yeoman service around the building, as you can well imagine. Also, it's my sister Andrew's birthday. So I want to wish her happy birthday. She's been in Toronto ever since she left for university. And, you know, we're the same age today. And I know some people have... Think this is offensive, and I never realized that it was re, uh, regarded as an offensive term when someone says that they're an Irish twin. But of course, I'm not offended myself. But Andrea, happy birthday to you! Look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay, let's go. Important piece of business being done by the province through the Harris Center at Memorial University regarding the teacher allocation review. We did speak to the fact that last week there was a report coming from the provincial government that enrollment in the K-12 system was up. It's so critically important to get this right. So 
again, there was a thousand more students enrolled in, versus what the projections were. But here's the unbelievable stats inside this, and I can't get over it, so I'm going to repeat it again today. It's the first increase we've seen since 1972. In 1972, there were more students enrolled in kindergarten through grade four than enrolled in the entire K-12 system today. So about 65,000 students in school today compared to 162,000 in 1972. So getting it right regarding the numbers of teachers, student assistants, and all the other support staff in the classroom is going to have to be improved upon. Inclusive education doesn't simply mean that everybody's in the same school. If the supports aren't in place, and if the class size and, co and class composition aren't working for all hands, including teachers and the students, regardless of your level of need or exceptionalities, to get this right is important. So there's an opportunity for the public to chime in on this allocation review with their committee, so please do exactly that. You know, when we talk about what's happened over the last few years, and what it's meant for the delivery of the curriculum and the fits and starts and the stops and starts and relying on online schooling or hybrid systems or now back in the classroom. So as a parent of a school-aged child, if you'd like to give us some of your thoughts about what's happening in your child's classroom today regarding the number of children that are isolating, what have you, and what you think it means for your child's education this year and or last year, preparation for the next grade, let's take it on. The class composition issue is so critically important to discuss, and we really should be doing it more and more. And on that front, not to just isolate or to uh, break out one segment of the student population, but today, the Autism Society is asking you to be cool for autism. So put on your sunglasses, get out to a nice sunny day here in Metro anyway, take a picture, tag the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador, and their, their handle is simply Autism Society NL. Tag them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to show your support for the Autism Society and the men, women, and children on the spectrum. Be cool for autism. All right, just one second. I have a sip of coffee. And I don't see that phone line ringing up here yet, so let's get that going, too. All right, so the House of Assembly reopens today to continue the spring sitting after a couple-of-week break. Should be some pretty busy times in the House of Assembly. I don't know what the agenda looks like for the opposition parties in their line of questioning today, but here comes the budget on April the 7th, both provincially and federally. There will be questions about Bay the Nord, and there will be questions about health care, but there's certainly going to be questions about Ukrainian refugees and the work being done in preparation there. But I think the broad strokes of cost of living will be the focus for most of the questions coming from the opposition parties. Yes, the province had come forward, the government came forward with a five-point plan, and it included a couple of things like transitioning from oil, heat to electric, and electric vehicles and subsidies and infrastructure, I get it. Supports for those on income supplement, those with disabilities, those receiving a senior's benefit, some increases there, not a whopping big amount, of course. And there's a certain wide swath of the population that didn't see any particular relief in that five-point plan. So there will be some focus on it today. You want to help the government and the opposition party set the agenda for this sitting? Please do come forward and offer your comments and thoughts on it this morning. With cost of living, there's only so many arenas where government can actually pull a lever and do much about it. But with so many people who are just struggling to heat their home and to drive their vehicle, the province of Ontario is actually introducing legislation today to help curb the cost of fuel at the pump. So in, with all matters included, it'll reduce it about 10 cents per liter, which is a significant savings when we talk about it in a monthly basis. It's going to start on the 1st of June, 
1st of July for six months as part of their plan to try to help Ontarian families and individuals with the price of fuel. So you wonder what might be in the offing for any cost of living support or relief on behalf of the provincial government coming up here now soon. Also see that, you know, everybody's got their, I was going to say their hand out. People are looking for additional supports, whether it be COVID-related uh, pummeling of their business, including the Stephenville Airport. They haven't seen any passenger traffic since sometime in 2020, and they're looking for some increased support from the provincial government. There was a million dollars set aside not so long ago for support for Gander, Derelict, and St. John's. Not included in that was Stephenville. Now, the government says they didn't apply for any of the, the funding or support, but they're now formally asking for it today. What do you think? Also, the province has to react to a, a judicial ruling that sees a pay raise coming from the for the province's judges. they got to do it by the 14th of April. And fair enough. I mean, if, if that's the way it works, that's it. But it's also a <laughs> pretty tidy arrangement when you get to put forward a judicial ruling to see your own pay increase. And that's not a wide swat at the province's judges. But on behalf of Open Line Hosts Everywhere, we, we need a raise. And we need to see it in the budget. <laughs> All right, let's go. All right, so here comes come home year. You know, some people continue to be worried about the fact that, you know, with all of the issues regarding the pandemic and whatever wave we're on and welcoming people to the province, whether or not that's a good or a bad idea. And you can offer your thoughts. Some communities have already postponed their celebrations, including Wabush. Many other municipalities are forging ahead. And hopefully tourism operators have a bang-up season because God knows they need it. Here's a strange one regarding, you know, I don't know why everybody decides to come here. The rugged beauty, the hospitality, the cuisine, the arts, puffins and whales and icebergs. But remember last year was a woeful year when it came to uh, icebergs. There was only one iceberg across the 48th parallel compared to the year prior. 1,500 icebergs crossed that parallel, which, you know, much to the delight of visitors and locals alike. But if you want to talk come home here, year here today, we absolutely can do exactly that. And when it comes to the budget, you wonder whether there'd be any attention given to the Green Report, the Premier's economic recovery team and the work they did and the recommendations inside their eventual report. Not much has happened, right? You know, we've gone from that body of work often to $5 million American dollars being paid to Rothschild and company to look at the government's assets, whether it be oil and gas, the Liquor Corporation, Marble Mountain, Motor Vehicle Registry, Bull Arm, up and down the line. So... I, I suppose because that report has been delayed that we're not going to see much attention given to it unless they just rely on what they put so much stock in, which was the Green Report, but the budget is highly anticipated. And then there'll be worries in some corners that, you know, with the whopping big deficit or debt and the continued borrowing and the billions of dollars of what it means to service that debt, which is more than we spend on education on an annual basis, there is some worry in certain corners of the province about the austere approach that the government may or may not take this upcoming Thursday, the 7th of April. But let's take it on if you're so inclined. Okay. We know what's going on in healthcare and how many healthcare workers are self-isolating. Some 780 was the re most recent number offered. A lot of those will be working in long-term care facilities. The pressures inside long-term care, whether it be with case counts for the residents and the staff, is becoming a huge concern. Now, again, I have no interest in making anyone fearful of, what, of what's happening, but we are seeing numbers going in the wrong direction. 
The most recent update we saw was some 38 people in hospital. That was down two from the record of 40. 11 of them will be in critical care. But the numbers of people and the restrictions that have now been reimposed in long-term care facilities are very, very real. Once again, nobody but nobody, well, I don't know what you think, but I'm certainly not clamoring or calling for any sort of real whopping widespread restrictions and any sort of quasi-lockdowns, completely disinterested in that. But I wonder what your thoughts are and what you're seeing out there and the numbers and what they mean to you. Hopefully we can get some control over this, and hopefully we don't see any further overwhelming of the healthcare system. Hopefully some of that $27 million brought forward by the uh, federal government to deal with surgical backlog can be helpful to so many of you out there, thousands of you out there, waiting for a surgical procedure. So if you want to talk about it, we can do it. And in the world of COVID, a lot of people asking questions about some of the uh, antiviral oral medication from Pfizer, Paxlovid. It's very strict restrictions as to who might be eligible for it. There's only been some 100, 148 people in the province that have received the five-day courses of the drugs. So, all right, we have received 500 courses. It is available, but there is some uh, problems with people who are taking cholesterol pills or some blood pressure medications, and they're counteractive with this particular Paxlovid drug. It has been successful. All 148 people who have taken it have been able to stay out of the hospital. So it's working, and I know many more people would like to have access to it, but the, the requirements and the restrictions and the eligibility issues are really quite narrow. And, of course, we only receive, just like we did with uh, doses of the vaccine, 1.4% of the doses delivered by Pfizer to the federal government. So at this moment, we have an additional some 300-odd 300 that are available to folks who can take the pills. And if you want to take, take that on today, let's do it. And does anybody have any other idea exactly what's going on with all the dead seabirds showing up by the hundreds outside of Hampton? So some people tell me that it's starvation. They don't see any oil on the birds, the tourists, and the mers. But they are showing up by the hundreds dead right there outside of Hampton. Interesting and curious and obviously very troubling issue for some. All right. Let's check in on the Twitter feed where VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's get a tune on the go. Just first, a, a quick music note. Today in 1964, the Beatles had the number one, two, three, four, and five singles on the charts. All top five uh, tunes were from the Beatles. Number one was Can't Buy Me Love, followed by Twist and Shout, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Please Please Me, but we're going a different direction. Today in 1985, the Eurythmics released this beauty, Would I Lie to You? We'll find out when we come back. Don't go away.
OCM's open line. Call now. 273-5211 or 1-888-590-VOCM. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Top of the board, line number one. Art, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, you? Beautiful morning. Beautiful. Nice blue sky, sunny day here in town. Oh, we got it here, do we? I can't tell you where I'm due. Uh, yes, boys. Anyway, we're starting off today. Now we're going to have a little talk on the seals again. We've got some problem with them here. And they're trying to sell it. Patty, where do you sell the disease? Because that's what it is. It's a disease. Something that's what? cured. You can't sell it. What does that mean, Art? I'm sorry, what's a disease? The seals are the disease. And the cure is the fucking... Okay, me. that's sorry, it. Sorry, Drop, no, no, that's no, it. That's no, it for no, Art. No, too bad. Uh, yeah, so the issue regarding seals is always a, you know, it's an annual conversation that we have, and very little action takes place on it. I mean, you see decisions made like by the World Trade Organization, a moral, uh, a moral decision based on the cruel or inhumane harvest, which, of course, is just fallen for the propaganda brought forward by some organizations, which, of course, we know is simply not true. It's a well-regulated, humane harvest of seals. The big trick has always been the same thing. Some people will just simply suggest that the conversation's over because we're unable to even fill the quota each year. We're unable to attract new markets. But, of course, that's just the concept of throwing up your hands and just giving up when... That's not going to be the cure for anything. Now, people might refer to seals as one thing or another, be, be a predator or a disease or whatever the case may be. But we've gone about it all wrong, haven't we? You know, for DFO to say that seals are a problem in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, but they're not a problem off our shores, really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When, in fact, a seal is a seal is a seal, and what they consume is quite obvious. There's been plenty of anecdotal and real-world uh, evidence given very clearly as to what they eat. And so when you just try to factor it in with the cod stock recovery and, yes, eat crabs and squid and others, so it's a, it's a real problem. First things first is find a, uh, finding a market because, yes, there are calls of sea lions and seals in other parts of the world. There absolutely is. That's true. Whether or not the government of Canada actually has the appetite for that type of approach to controlling the seal population remains to be seen. And certainly over the years, it doesn't look like they have any appetite for it. Whether or not they've done enough in an effort to protect the fishery here in the province, done enough for the control of the seal population, is another interesting conversation. But I think when we see what are the real attractive components and parts of a seal, the most attractive this day and age will absolutely be the unique feature of the omega-3 oils in a seal. We know there might be some market for meat, there might be some market for pelt, but there absolutely is a market for the oil. So even if you start there, and then try to expand markets for the other products, whether it be the pelt and or the meat. But it's the oil that I think can really, even the folks who are so vehemently opposed to the seal hunt, will absolutely be the exact same people who are looking for omega-3 oils. So I guess that's where we have to really pro start and refocus our energies or efforts. If you want to talk about it, let's go. Also, one of the big controversies, we'll stick with the water in the fishery, is the crab. 
So has there been a price determined? I actually meant to look for that this morning. It has to be sometime today. The crab fishery opens in many of the regions today. So the spat between the Association of Seafood Producers and the FFAW, which is an annual one, and the price for everything, including crab. So there's a long way between 905 and 760. 760 is the rollover price from last year. We know there's been a 32% increase in the crab quota, snow crab quota for the island, a 28% decrease for Labrador, which is obviously not sitting well with harvesters and government representatives in Labrador. But the fishery opens today. You know, again, I don't really understand exactly how many of these things work when we have the exact same conversation and debate year over year, and we don't change any of the structural issues to try to do away with some of these annual rackets about whether it be price or quota or otherwise, gear or whatever else is associated with some of the concerns in the fishery, the buddy-up system and the bycatch and everything else that is just remains in place as controversies and arguments that we just continue to have. Buddy-up and bycatch should be something that could be quite simply addressed. There's other fisheries that have best practices in place regarding bycatch where there's a nominal fee paid at the wharf if you, quote-unquote, inadvertently catch a species that is not this particular season and or the gear you have in the water, as opposed to food and profit thrown back into the ocean. It just makes absolutely no sense. So, yeah, you don't have to pay big market uh, prices for some of the bycatch product, but bringing it ashore, allowing it to be sold and eaten, just makes so much more sense than what we currently do. Same thing when we look at the price of diesel and what the concept of buddy-up might be. You know, we're just making things much more complicated and difficult and expensive in a lot of different industries, but specifically in the fishery, given the fact that's what we're talking about today. So and I'm, I would imagine the trucking industry and grocery retailers and fish harvesters and others who rely on diesel as the fuel to make their vehicle uh, move, it's getting completely out of hand, which is, I guess, why we'll all collectively go back to looking at Thursday, the 7th of April, and wonder what's going to be in that budget to help control what's going on with my, my bills. Now, the provincial governments don't have all the full control over all of the cost of living issues. You know, for instance, telecom bills, even though they've receded a little bit, but they do have a lot of things that they can indeed tackle, and if you would like to bring it forward, we can do it. Uh, someone asked me, uh, actually one person in particular, just... He's exhausting, but he's completely opposed to any apology afforded to uh, victims of the residential schools, including Pope Francis, who did indeed offer an apology last week. No real confirmation as to whether or not Pope Francis is going to make his way to Canada to reiterate the apology sometime this year. But I think it was most welcomed by the 14 indigenous leaders who were indeed at the Vatican for these discussions. Next steps, of course, would obviously be reconciliation and compensation. Compensation is an important component of it. I know the first step of an apology is a part of the process. Same thing for those folks who are congregants or parishioners in the, Saint, uh, the Archdiocese of St. John's. It's the compensation issue now which will rule the next stage of the conversation. The Vatican and the Roman Catholic Church sits on billions upon billions upon billions of assets. Whether it be cash in the Vatican Bank, whether it be investments, whether it be land assets. Remember, outside of governments, the Roman Catholic Church is the single largest landholder in the world. They made reference to, you know, I don't know why they chose this as the comparison or pardon me, the analogy, but if you, all of the land assets that they have, if you simply use the most inexpensive, 
plot of vacant farmland in Saskatchewan, which trades apparently for in and around $900 an acre, even at that very small number, which does not include some of the prime real estate that the church holds in the world cities, the New Yorks and the and Londons and Vancouver's of the world. Even if you just use that Saskatchewan number, it adds up to over $160 billion worth of land that the Vatican holds. So to extrapolate that to real world, to include all the real prime real estate holdings that they have, that number is quite easily $300 billion, without question. So it's one thing to apologize. It's quite another to take ownership in the form of compensation that will, at some point, have to flow to the residential school survivors, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, and the stories are dastardly, to say the very least. So an emailer quite concerned that we ever dare make mention of COVID numbers. You know, as you know, as frequent listeners, I only offer them as pieces of information. But we also have to realize that it impacts all the other issues that we talk about. What's happening in the K-12 system? What's happening in other facets of healthcare? What's happening with industry? What it looks like for hospitality and tourism and the airlines and the airport authorities? So it's not to try to stoke any fear because I don't need you to be fearful. Uh, But if we don't put information in front of you, then, of course, that's probably a betrayal of what the show can indeed bring to the airwaves. All right, let's check the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stephen enjoyed the tune, a bit of rhythmics at the bottom of the, of the preamble. So I do also see in the news that the RNC are going forward with their most recent uh, recruit campaign. There's lots of vacancies, a lot of uh, retirees coming up in the very near future for the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. We'll hear from Constable James Cadigan on the issue right after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary has indeed launched a new campaign, recruitment campaign for the class of 2023. Join us on line number one to discuss the recruitment campaign is Constable James Cadigan. Constable Cadigan, you're on the air. How are you this morning, Patty? Doing fine, sir. How about you? Not too shabby. And of course, uh, Constable Cadigan is the RNC Media Relations Officer. Give us an idea how many spots are available. Uh, right now, I mean, it's it's difficult to project exact numbers. You know, every year we try to project uh, where we'll be in two years. Uh, in terms of retirements and uh, needs. So uh, certainly as this year moves forward through this application process, we'll have a better idea probably near the end of the summer uh, exactly where our numbers will be. But uh, you can expect it'll be in the teens in that, in that range. For forever and a day, one of the most proud vocations and the most respected positions in the community would be police officers. Some increased scrutiny has made it a different kintle of fish for law enforcement right across North America. Now, maybe some of what we see in the United States kind of seeps into the psyche of what we think and uh, talk about here in Canada. But talk about that scrutiny, what it means for the uh, law enforcement agency itself, and for what recruitments might think as a career in law enforcement. 
Yeah, that's, that's a great point, and I'm, I'm glad that we're able to discuss it here. You know, and that's what makes this application process at this moment, you know, so important for the future of this organization. You know, we're really framing who we're going to be, you know, for the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years at this point. And, uh, you know, I think that you can point at so many attributes that you expect to see and, and want to see in a police officer, like strong communication skills, teamwork, leadership. Uh, but really, it's it's we're really a focus on people with a vested interest and desire to really engulf themselves in a profession that is set on making our community a better place and set on supporting vulnerable people and, and connecting with and making partnerships in the community that, uh, you know, helps everybody. Um, you know, I think that for me, when I look at resilience in a person, you know, the capacity to maintain a stable performance, you know, in what will be a stressful environment. And I think that, uh, you know, you really start framing up the next number of years and, and see that this application process is really a shift towards the future. It certainly and obviously would be a stressful environment. So talk about how the uh, RNC vets the applicants. Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty uh, extensive process there. So uh, we start with, a, you know, an application document that we receive with a number of points that you can go on our website. And uh, under join, you'll find all the information related to the application process and the requirements under that, uh, you know, to, to essentially provide us with that first document. And uh, from there, it takes off to a pair process, which is a physical ability requirement exam. And, uh, you know, then you're getting into interviews, including, uh, you know, the next step being a polygraph process. So, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a lengthy and, uh, you know, can be strenuous for people in, in engaging in this application process. But that is what is required to ensure that, uh, you know, we are able to understand the people who are applying and to ensure that we're getting a quality candidate. When you try to fill out the positions that are vacant, what's the focus that the RNC will take to, whether it be men, women, different uh, uh, different backgrounds of different individuals? Is there a quota system in place? What's the concept of, of diversification look like at the RNC? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, we're really trying to reflect our community. And, uh, you know, certainly here in the Northeast Avalon, it's, it's an evolving and ever-changing, uh, you know, demographic. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that, when we're taking in candidates, we have a strong representation from, uh, you know, all sectors of our of our community. What's morale like in the ranks, uh, Constable Cadigan? Because uh, you and I both know very well that there's been a lot of very damaging stories in recent times, whether it be Douglas Snellgrove and his conviction, whether it be other unnamed officers that have been alleged to have behaved in criminal fashion regarding sexual assaults, what have you. There's some 11 that have come forward to speak with lawyer Lynn Moore. When we have a group that faces such scrutiny, even if it might be the vast minority of uh, law enforcement, or pardon me, police officers in the RNC that are doing these things, it will be worn by everyone in uniform. What's morale like in the ranks? Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, officer misconduct and whatnot, there are, uh, you know, processes in place where we have civilian oversight to investigate any complaints or concerns related to misconduct. So there is a strong accountability process now in our province that uh, will hold officers accountable for, for any actions that are outside of the outside of their line of duty, essentially, or, you know, their, their public service. So uh, that is one aspect that really has rung, uh, you know, a change in the way things are done in policing in really the, the country. And, uh, you know, moving forward to the 
morale and everything and everything that surrounds that particular issue you know uh, our police services you know essentially like i said moving in towards the future you know we're trying to identify ourselves as to who we're going to be and, and we're a reliable police service that is so focused on the community and so focused on providing a quality professional service you know that is essentially the priority of the rnc to provide a police service that is reliable compassionate and uh, you know trustworthy and uh, you know, I, th- I think I look at our call volume every day, and I'm truly astonished at uh, not only the number of calls completed by our officers, but the quality work that is done. And, uh, you know, you think about the fact that every day we've got, in the Northeast Avalon, we've got roughly 40 officers on the street. We've got, you know, Cornerbrook Region, Labrador City, and Churchill Falls. So these officers are on, on boots on the ground every day and responding to calls. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough about the good work they're doing, and certainly you can't go without saying that certainly one of these uh, one of these uh, incidents that you look at that brings that negative tone to policing can certainly, you know, put all of that in the dark and be forgotten about. But I think it's so, certainly so important to recognize their work because it just goes to speak to their resilience and their uh, their discipline and that they are dedicated to their work and they're going to continue to provide a consistent service every day regardless of what's uh, going on around them. What does community policing policing mean this day and age? Because, you know, whether it be uh, years ago when everybody knew the police officer, the cop on the beat in their neighborhood, whether it be downtown or in the neighborhoods themselves, there was a just much different feel and flair to law enforcement. So what does community policing look like in modern-day uh, policing? Yeah, I think that... Uh, Community policing is very, very much still existent, and I think that uh, we can certainly look at where it's going to go in the future. You know, certainly we're responding to calls at a much higher volume in this day and age compared to the past. So there is a requirement to be in vehicles, to be able to get to places quicker and uh, be accessible throughout the community. Uh, you know, but we do intend to continue to build relationships within the community to ensure that, you know, our service is consistent that we're able to connect with different sectors and cor- and corners of the community to make sure that, you know, we're, we're building strong relationships and uh, breaking down any barriers that may exist. Last one before I let you go, Constable Cadigan. We've yep. been talking an awful lot about mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness, certainly throughout the pandemic, and we know how many people in the community are affected by one of those three categories. What kind of training do your officers uh, go through, and how has the process evolved in responding to a mental illness or related call you know i don't can't remember it's called the memphis model or what have you but what kind of training are the officers getting and what's the process for responding to these types of calls yeah that's correct actually it is the memphis model so uh, that would relate to our mobile crisis response team that is equipped with an officer as well as a mental health professional so uh, that would be one of the responses to uh, mental health crisis uh, where and when it occurs and uh, that is certainly uh, a very progressive move as uh, we are you know, the only police service with a, a mobile crisis response team actually within our uh, police headquarters operating at full capacity. And uh, further to that, uh, you know, our frontline officers are trained in crisis intervention, which is uh, consistent with the Memphis model and, uh, you know, the officers who are working within that particular unit. So it is the same training that they would receive and that is uh, delivered across the board uh, on our front line. Uh, you know, I have to say that... Uh, the RNC right now is focused on a safety and wellness strategy. Certainly, 
in the community, but also within the organization. And uh, I've really got to throw a bouquet to uh, Sam Burke, who is in here, uh, you know, as our safety and wellness strategist and now, uh, you know, the lead for our officer safety and training uh, for really, you know, kind of lighting the way uh, over the past number of years for where this organization is headed in wellness and safety, you know, from prevention of injury, uh, you know, operational stress injury. And, uh, you know, it's so important that the police service itself is healthy and safe so that these officers and, and civilians here within the organization can provide a service that is, again, consistent, and they're able to stay safe and healthy in the process. And I, I think it kind of leads into the point that a safe and healthy police service would be a safe and healthy community because, uh, you know, you're, provi- you're being provided with a, a service that is, you know, consistent, safe, and, uh, you know, reliable. Uh, okay, I said that was the last one. That wasn't true. What do interested applicants need to do if they want to be part of the uh, RNC? Yeah, so I, I mentioned early on that, uh, you know, on our website we have uh, under join on the main page, you can find the application document on that uh, on that point page, and uh, you'll see all the requirements there. If you have any questions, you can reach out to our training section, and that's at 7298. Uh, I'll have to check on that, actually. It's on the main page there. The number is lost on me at the moment, but uh, you can email them at rncrecruiting at rnc.gov.nl.ca. And uh, you'll get a message back as soon as possible. Uh, You know, when it comes to the application process, essentially our closing date is April 15th. So we're looking to get this moving at this point and and trying to uh, see where this next number of months leads this process and ensure that, uh, you know, we're getting the best candidates to, uh, you know, provide a service to our community. Appreciate your time this morning, Constable Cadigan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All the best. Bye-bye. As Constable James Cadigan, he's the RNC Media Relations Officer, and you've heard the information if you're an interested potential member of the RNC. The info is right there on their homepage. Uh, Today, the 4th of April, the Autism Society is asking you to be cool for autism. You go out in the beautiful outdoors, put on your sunglasses, take a picture, post it on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram in a show of support for the Autism Society. To tell us more about this and other initiatives going on at the Autism Society is the CEO, Paul Walsh, right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the CEO at the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Walsh. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, sir. How about you? Very good, thank you. Beautiful day. Yes, it is a gorgeous day, and it lines up perfectly for Be Cool for Autism. What's happening today? It certainly does. The Be Cool for Autism happens around this time every year. Of course, April 2nd, Saturday, was World Autism Awareness Day, as designated by the United Nations. Uh, It's a day in the year uh, that uh, marks this. We work to continuously uplift and empower autistic voices on April 2nd, but not every day, and if not every day. 
But today we uh, recognize Be Cool for Autism, where we ask people to have a little fun and do uh, a, uh, an, uh, some activities to bring awareness, bring understanding to autism. And on this sunny day, we ask you, one of the things we ask you to do is put on your sunglasses and take a selfie and um, use the hashtag Be Cool for Autism. Uh, we ask you to use an accessible hashtag, which means capitalizing the first word, letter in each word so that a screen reader can read it properly. And um, just um, in a fun way with some of the other activities that are on our website, some of the things that can be downloaded from our website, bring understanding, bring opti uh, um, uh, to autism, and recognize that everyone needs to be included in our society and that learning from lived experience is the best way to do that. And some of that inclusion will start in the schools. Absolutely. So uh, someone sent out a tweet that made it through my, uh, my Twitter feed, and they did indeed tag the NL uh, English-speaking school district. So autism is a complicated issue when we talk about uh, supports in schools, student assistance and otherwise, because as I've been told many times, if you've met someone on the spectrum, you've met someone on the spectrum because it's so wide and broad and everybody's different insofar as they're, where they fall on the spectrum. So how complicated is it and what are we seeing in the schools? Well, first of all, I should say that the school district and, and the NLTA are big partners and be cool and we really appreciate that. And um you know, you're correct that autistic, autistic individuals throughout the school system, everyone presents a different uh, um, situation. And um, we are working with the school district and with uh, the teachers and with the teaching assistants and the itinerants uh, to make that situation as, uh, as useful so to ensure that everyone uh, achieves their right to a full education, full public education. Um, I'm not going to suggest there's not challenges. I'll never suggest that there's not challenges. Everyone should recognize that um, autistic persons face challenges in society. Um, and the school board works with us and with, with others and with, with the parents of the children in the, school, in the schools to address those challenges. Um, but it's about working towards a, a society where we're including everybody and that the society itself adapts to the needs there. Uh, but the challenges still exist without a doubt. The challenges can only be overcome if people are really aware of what's going on in the world of autism. You could have someone who has Asperger's, someone who's nonverbal, someone who simply has sensor, uh, sensory sensitivities. So what do you think the level of understanding is amongst the members of the community who don't have someone in their family with autism, don't know anybody on the spectrum? Well, I think um, it's improving. I think it needs to improve a lot. Just pick up a few things in your, what you just said. Um, autism isn't linear. So we don't get into descriptions of things like uh, Asperger's and uh, people use terms like high-functioning and low-functioning. That's not something that uh, is in our language, to be honest with you. It's not, uh, as I say, it's not linear. So every situation presents differently, and we need to understand the individual and understand their lived experience and their reality and to be kind and to ensure that we're working with them to find uh, the solutions. As for understanding within society, yeah, it's 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 a uh, an ongoing um, uh, challenge. Uh, but you know, if you look at the example of things, for example, like what happens, what has happened in Port of Basque, the most autism-friendly community in Canada, um, is proof that when a community and when people want to understand, they can understand, and we can work together to ensure that we have an inclusive society, inclusive communities. Paul, what's IQ70 and how is it applied? 
IQ70 is a uh, is a well, it's it's a measure of IQ. Uh, actually, it used to uh, delineate when someone qualified for certain services under intellectual disabilities under the Autism Action Plan. The IQ70 criteria has been removed when it relates to services provided for. Uh, autism. Um, that has been put in place. Uh, it's working its way through the system, uh, but it used to designate whether or not certain services were eligible to a person. It's, it was something that needed to be removed. It has been removed by the provincial government. A deeply flawed measure. I, I've never, under, deeply. <laughs> never, never understood it first and last. No. So we've made it through the school system in, in some form here this morning. What about supports after the age majority, after you turn 18, you know, when you enter into your adult years, whether it be employment supports or whatever the case may be, what's actually available? Employment supports, I'll start there. Um, we do a lot of employment programming here at the Autism Society uh, to uh, prepare people for the workplace. Um, honestly, the challenge of autistic adults has not been dealt with in this province and really in this country. Um, it is uh, the thing that I hear about most every day. I talk to autistic individuals daily who come to me and say, great, you know, we had programming up to age 18 or age 21, what's next? And that might look like residential uh, considerations, it might look like employment considerations, post-secondary education. I'm really pleased now that uh, there's a uh, uh, an autistic group, for example, at Memorial University, which has not existed before. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there are programs in place to give people the skill sets that they need, like we all need, to move into the workplace, to give them experience. We have some great partners who uh, provide job shadowing opportunities. Um, but that, that, is, that is the next frontier uh, of addressing uh, the proper services and supports for adults with autism. So there will be supports offered for the individual. What about uh, programs or supports for employers? Because it's one thing for the individual to get some help, but unless employers are aware of the opportunities that uh, people on the spectrum can provide to their business, then we're kind of swimming upstream. Well, Patty, that's the challenge of persons with disabilities. Um, I, I, I don't have autism, but I do have cerebral palsy, so I am a person. I am a disabled person, and I can tell you that the challenges of persons with disabilities in the workplace is broad. Um, understanding that when when an ableist society looks at someone with a disability and says, "Well, then there, there's got to be some." something that you can't contribute versus what you can. So that's more about the awareness piece and more about understanding and having employers who uh, employ people. I mean, before before COVID, so many people I knew who were, uh, were denied employment because, well, we can't accommodate the workplace for, let's say, if it was a motorized wheelchair. And they'd say, well, can't we work from home? No, no, we don't do that. Well, we suddenly do that now. And uh, it wasn't that we couldn't do it, it's that we weren't willing to. So the more employers are aware of this incredible resource of people, uh, whether we're talking about autistic individuals or, or the whole group of persons with disabilities, the incredible potential of, for the labor force that exists, the more people understand that, the more people realize that, yes, we can, and there's not a, a lens of no, we can't, um, the better the better for our society, the better for our economy, the better for our businesses. Yeah, hopefully employers can see past catchphrases like see the ability and disability and actually yeah. try to understand the issue and to see what can be contributed versus, you know, putting up the barriers before you even have the conversation. Uh, last word to you, Paul. What else do people want to know about uh, Be Cool for Autism today or anything well, else that you'd like to say? Sure. Well, Be Cool for Autism uh, on our website, asnl.ca, there's lots of uh, different things that schools and others can download to be involved. Really encourage people to get out there and get their selfies posted. Um, 
and just to watch our social media for things that are happening. The other thing I'd like to mention is that this is a very important year for the Autism Society. This is our 40th anniversary, and we've launched our 40th anniversary of 40 years together, uh, 40 years of advocacy, 40 years of connection, 40 years of support. And uh, we're uh, we're really uh, really excited by a lot of the things that are happening. Be cool is the start. We have a we will be soon announcing a, a very uh, significant uh, con- conference on autism in May, uh, and there'll be events throughout the year uh, to again increase the understanding of autism in our society and to uh, foster a commitment uh, where people are willing to learn and to be kind and to work together for a more inclusive society. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Paul. Thank you. Great to talk talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. Take care. Paul Walsh, the CEO at the Autism Society. Uh, Just out of the corner of my eye, while while Mr. Walsh was wrapping up, I see a headline that says, the federal government is set to announce a new phase-in program to see low-income families and seniors pay $20 a month for high-speed internet. So that's something of interest, I would imagine, to many people listening to the program this morning. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, during the news reading and replying to a couple of emails, one person, and this has been a very common sentiment in my inbox, is that why would the province even entertain the concept or the potential to sell off the Newfoundland Labrador Liquor Corporation? It's a good question. I mean, when you just look at the the return to the province, there was a record in returns this year. It's over $200 million. It's hard to replicate that in any other field that the government touches, but... It doesn't include a lot of different moving parts inside the conversation because we don't even have a clear understanding about what anybody means about selling the NLC. There's a lot to it, and nor have we had any real clear understanding of what the other side of the ledger looks like, what it actually costs to operate the NLC, whether it be the real estate and compensation, the rate of pay afforded to its employees, the distribution uh, plans that are in place, the partnership with the LCBO in Ontario to make it the largest purchasing power block in the liquor world. So we don't really know what it means, but I think if we're going to have a better understanding of how it might look on the other side, then that would be quite helpful, which is why it boils back to the concept of debating the issues case by case in the legislature. There has been no commitment in full by Minister Cody to release the upcoming report from Rothschild regarding all of these assets, which I think is extremely problematic, and no commitment to debating each case one by one, individually, on the floor of the House of Assembly. If we don't have that type of information in front of us, then people will very quickly say, well, Rothschilds has full control of some of our government assets. Which, of course, is not necessarily true, but unless we get all the details and have the detailed, comprehensive debate in the House of Assembly, we'll never really know where we stand. I don't think you're going to see anybody be up in arms if it comes to Marble Mountain, because the government's been trying to offload Marble Mountain for quite a long time. Now, it doesn't seem like anybody's actually interested in trying to take it on and make a 12-month, year-round operation out of it without a government subsidy. Whether there will be inefficiencies with the way it's actually managed today, I don't know. I don't know the inner workings of the Marble Mountain Corporation. But that million dollars, I don't think we've seen anybody that has a business model that they've put forward to reply to uh, proposals coming from the government to tackle it without that type of investment coming from them. 
nor do I think you're going to see a whole lot of people up in arms if Bull Arm is on the table and fully privatized. There will indeed be pushback if we're talking about motor vehicle registries, and there's lots of lessons we can learn from the privatization in other jurisdictions, whether it be liquor in Alberta or registries in other provinces or in other provinces in the country. But someone wonders aloud how we must be, quote-unquote, as per this emailer, so stupid to even consider privatizing the NLC. But remember, the taxation on the products sold at the NLC, whether it be cannabis products, hand or beer, alcohol, wine, we still will be able to tax it. And a lot of those revenues coming for, from the NLC to the provincial coffers are straight-up taxation issues anyway. So it's not like we do away with the entirety of the $200 million. The big problem will be, and this is where you see NAPE get involved with their campaign, there might indeed be more outlets. And for the consumer, there might be some competition where it sees, you know, you might be able to get a bottle of lambs somewhere cheaper versus the store close by you. I don't know if that's going to really be a key feature. There's been some competitive uh, balance struck in Alberta, for instance. But for NAPE and others concerning, uh, concerned uh, organizations watching, it will simply be no question there will be all those jobs which are paid pretty well will not be in place. If we're talking about a liquor express outfit in one community or another, they're not going to be paying these unionized wages and benefits packages that are currently in place for employees at the NLC. There will indeed be fewer people working in the managerial or executive level as well. But the real concern, as per the NAEP campaign and their reference to it being our legacy, will be all of those jobs that make a reasonable living today, they won't be there tomorrow if the asset is sold off. So I guess that would be the ultimate concern for folks who are watching and putting forward advertising campaigns talking about the privatization potential for Rothschild. And again, it's always important to understand the context and the background or the historical recommendations coming from a company like Rothschild and Company and the relationship between Moya Green and the Rothschilds. When she was the head of the Royal Mail in the UK, did indeed bring in the Rothschilds, and eventually the Royal Mail was privatized. And it cost a whopping big sum for that to happen, and nor am I sure that has created any efficiencies for the delivery of mail in the United Kingdom as well. So those things are real. And whether or not $5 million American dollars was even required to bring in outside consultants when we just went through the entire exercise of the Premier's economic recovery team, I think there are fair questions that people are posing. All right. I see over the weekend some extremely sad news, and I'll leave all the names out of it, but a young man was killed in a collision on the highway. And the reports at this moment in time, and we'll let the RNC conclude their investigation, bring forward all of the different uh, facts, but there is the thought that there might indeed be a drunk driver involved in this accident, and not the young man who's dead. The, uh, the fellow or the person that was eventually just simply brought to the hospital. We're not sure of their physical status today. But that's, be, you know, I would imagine it's much more rampant than we even understand it to be. And if you, you know, of course, that's the most dangerous behavior behind the wheel, even though things like simply being distracted has become a big problem. We had a caller last week that just simply talked about how aggressive and reckless drivers are on the provinces, highways, and byways. And I can tell you, in no uncertain terms, in and around the city, it's absolutely true. I don't know why I've started to do this, but when I drive anywhere now, I keep a really close eye on just how many people are blown through the red lights. And it's almost every single red light I arrive at, someone is blowing through it, the very last stage of the yellow, and absolutely running the red lights. 
It's time for the legislation to change so that any of these speed cameras at the red lights or otherwise are put in place. The cost recovery, if driving behaviors don't change in St. John's for sure, if people continue to drive the way they drive, we will recover the money invested on the speed cameras and all the data compilation systems that it will require. And yeah, people will continue to tell me, well, we don't have front license plates and what happens if it's not me driving the car? Certainly we can address things like that because it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. It's already in place in many parts of the country. I got nabbed on a speed camera in Winnipeg, right? I didn't even realize the speed zone had changed so quickly. If you've ever driven through Winnipeg, the speed zone changes in a heartbeat from highway speed to I think it's like 70 and then there's all of a sudden a 50 and then you're back to a 70 and then you're back to a 100. So I got nabbed there. Anyway, let's keep going. Line number one, Betty, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, uh, I was calling about the price of oil and, and gas. Yes, ma'am. Uh, my husband and I are both in our 80s, and uh, we're on uh, living just on our pensions. And we, pay, we put our electric bill and our oil bill on uh, 10-month post-dated checks. And the oil company this year told me to make my check out for 285 but I thought to be on the safe side, we'd make it 300 even. In the last three months, my oil bill has been almost $1,800. Almost a half a year of what I normally pay. And between that and the gas, and I mean, where we live, we're out in rural, and I mean, you've got to have a car. And with the gas prices and the oil prices now, I don't see how we're going to put food on the table next month. It's an all-too-common story these days, isn't it, Patty? Because I don't know how so many people are able to make ends meet. I just don't get it. I mean, I, luckily myself and my wife work, and we're feeling the pinch, but... I don't know what's going on in so many people's households, whether it be working poor or low-income families or seniors on a fixed income. And that's why I continue to bring forward the issue regarding what the province might have to do to put some additional supports in place. Now, if they do away with some revenue associated with, say, for instance, HST on home heating fuels, they'll get it somewhere else. But we can't have people making a, a choice between whether or not they're going to get oil, with, which they have to, especially through these winter months, or actually eat. So, Betty, I don't know what's coming, but I think there'll be a lot of eyes keenly focused on the budget on Thursday to see if they're going to do anything. I certainly will be. I can tell you that. I mean, we turn our oil down every night, and still, I mean, it's, it's just been crazy. When we seen our last three oil bills, I couldn't believe it. And, I mean, you, you know, you, you just, you can't turn around. You can't. We can't buy the food we usually do. My husband's had a, a major operation and has two bags on his stomach, and he's been told to eat fruit. I bought two oranges, and it cost me almost $4 just for two oranges. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I really don't know. And I don't understand. I know there's a war in Russia, but I can't understand why one place, is driving all this up so high? It, that's a good question. And you know what, Betty? I think there's a lot to uh, take from that point that you're making because people will blame an awful lot of these issues on the war in Ukraine when, in fact, I think there's some exaggeration associated with that. Well, this is the way I feel. I mean, I just can't understand it. 
one place that that could be driving everything all across the world. It just doesn't make sense to me at all. Well, there's going to be some impact uh, with that war, that conflict in Ukraine, as it pertains to things that are made out of any grains. Because Ukraine and Russia, they refer to it as the breadbasket of Europe. So that absolutely will interrupt some global supply. And Canada, we saw a 30% decrease in the yield of our grains last year with the droughts. So I understand all the, the contributing factors there. But that doesn't extend to $4 for two oranges. So I'm well, with you. I'm a little bit confused as to why everything has gone so high so quick. And especially, I mean, here in Newfoundland, we're feeling it worse because we have to have so much come in. I understand that, but it's it's very confusing trying to figure it all out. It absolutely is. And then the inflation issue is a contributing factor, of course. But, Betty, I, I, like you, will be waiting to see what the provincial government brings forward on Thursday because there's a lot of folks out there that even with that five-point plan that the government brought forward, that didn't hit them in the pocketbook to help them at all. So there'll be a lot of folks waiting to see what happens here. Yes, I, well, I certainly will be. I know that. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Take good care. All right. All right, bye-bye. You know, and... I get the distinct feeling that even some of the companies that have control of production are playing a bit of a game here with us. North American corporate profits are at a 70-year high. Grocery chains and otherwise. So inflation is a complicated issue, as we all know. But when demand outweighs supply, then we have uh, inflationary pressures. And interest rates and other things can be, you know, adjusted to try to deal with it or to curb inflation, which is at a 30-year high. The last report was 5.7%. But there's absolutely the contributing factor of straight-up, unadulterated greed. How many companies in different industries and provision of different goods that we use and necessities of life are absolutely controlling the production and consequently able to jack up prices and point fingers of blame uh, at inflation. And you know who the corporations are loving the most on this front? is when we have politicians that make the intellectually lazy argument that it's one opposition member or another, that it's, it's Macron's fault or it's Trudeau's fault or it's Biden's fault, when in fact they know better, but they're making political hay on it, and as a result, the corporations are able to use it as an excuse to increase the prices, which might might not reflect the actual demand versus supply of one good or another. So when the politicians are making hay and making some of their very flimsy points about these extremely complicated global measures, they're not actually helping you at all. They're not helping me at all. They're helping the corporations that are doing very, very well, now, some businesses and some sectors of the economy, they're not doing great. Tourism, hospitality, food and beverage, you know, and we understand the, the pandemic's implications there. But when they are playing their games of political babble and rhetoric, they're not helping, do, uh, helping anybody or anything or any entity or any government try to deal with some of these costs of living and or inflationary concerns. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. That's John Abbott. Minister Abbott, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, sir. How about you? Fine, thank you. So last week we talked about a partnership between uh, your department and first, uh, Food First NL about community food. But there's an issue that's also in the news about an action team that's in place to try to deal with folks experiencing homelessness in Happy Valley Goose Bay. What's happening? Well, Patty, we have in uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay at the present time an action team set up uh, over a year ago now to look at housing and homelessness issues in the Happy Valley Goose Bay area. And the team now has roughly 14 agencies represented, including Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. And our task is to work together collaboratively uh, to help the community to address uh, the issues that uh, they're, they're facing. One of the challenges, of course, is that the finding appropriate accommodation, making sure the supports are in place, uh, and re recognizing that there are a number of agencies involved. So we felt it was best that we all work together, work collaboratively, and that is uh, excuse me, starting to show results. Then, you know, it becomes an even more difficult situation when we see that the Gary Broomfield Hostel and Diner has been closed. That's part of the Labrador Friendship Center. How many people were accommodated in that facility? Well, that uh, particular facility really focused on uh, supporting people who were coming in from the north coast of Labrador predominantly for medical uh, medical appointments. So that's not going to have a significant impact on, on the housing homelessness issues, per se. Those people then, uh, for the time being, will be uh, will probably be set up in a hotel, th those kinds of things. Uh, the Labrador Friendship Centre is just re re looking at its mission and uh, determining how best to, to move forward, and they will continue to be on our uh, action team. The community has reached out to the provincial government to deal with this matter over the last number of years. How widespread is the homelessness issue in Happy Valley Goose Bay? Well, it's a, it's a significant issue. I can't uh, under, uh, underestimate it, but what uh, we have found uh, that when we've come together as uh, as a community, we have now come up with uh, s solutions. So we do have the housing hub uh, uh, managed and operated by the national government, and that's really uh, really helping uh, to uh, to deal with most of the the issues. Uh, then we have other supports in place. We have uh, supportive housing in place. We're looking at the concept of a quote-unquote gathering place model, so that we'll have services that are integrated. What the particular challenge is certainly in the spring and into the summer when we have a number of people coming in from the, the coast, Natwashish, and uh, other communities, uh, and trying to find a place to uh, to be accommodated. And that's the, the, the biggest challenge. Uh, so this year we're going to make sure that we can support them when they arrive, uh, make sure we got outreach workers to support whatever the, their needs are. And I think that will uh, really help uh, solve some of the uh, challenges that we have seen in the past. And dealing with the realities today, Day, of course, is important, critically important. But as you know, I like to go back to the beginning and understand what root cause issues might be, whether it be addictions or poverty or whatever the case is. So while we are doing this piece of work with the action team, what well, what's ongoing concurrently to try to address some of the root cause issues? Because you know sometimes it's a band aid versus what is a cure. No, and fair enough, and uh, that's uh, certainly part of the work here. A uh, number of people do present with uh, addiction issues. Uh, alcohol uh, uh, is one of those. So we're making sure that we have the supports in place to help those who uh, want to, to move uh, off their addiction. And uh, so we would have the Labrador Grenfell Health Authority and other support workers uh, in place to, to support those uh, individuals. 
the other thing is we've got the Inu Nation that are actually involved uh, with the team because they see there's certainly a, a role for them to work with their uh, their members, same with the Nazfit government and uh, Nunu Tuvavit. So everybody's engaged, and it is really now uh, incumbent upon all of us to make sure we get the right uh, services and supports in place. Uh, as we uh, as we deal with this in the in the weeks and months to come, and part of the description of your department is children, seniors, and social development. When can we anticipate the role of a seniors advocate to be uh, refilled? Because uh, Dr. Suzanne Brake has retired. The role was, I thought, pretty important, even though it didn't deal with individual seniors matters. It dealt with issues in broad strokes. When will we see a new seniors advocate? Well, Patty, we're certainly working on that and through the process. It involves the Independent Appointments Commission. It will involve the House. It will involve the Cabinet. So all of those processes are being worked through. In the meantime, the office is, is, uh, is functioning quite well. And uh, we're making sure here at the Department uh, with our Provincial Advisory uh, Council on uh, Aging and Seniors that the issues are being identified and are being addressed. What do you say to the province of seniors who will be Keenly uh, having to focus on the budget here on the 7th of April because seniors on a fixed income is one thing when trying to deal with the explosion in the cost of everything, whether it be food or fuel or home heating oils or what have you. What do you say to those seniors who are needing some additional support and whether or not they're going to get it on Thursday? Well, I can't speak to the, any of the specifics in the budget that uh, Minister Cody will be bringing down at, the, at this point. Uh, we did respond uh, there two weeks ago uh, with our five-point uh, plan, and certainly seniors were certainly a part of that with the, uh, uh, the seniors' benefit that we've enhanced that by 10% across the board. So we're, uh, we are acting. There are other things that I know the government wants to look at, and the, the budget will address uh, some other matters, I, I believe, coming forward. Uh, we will be interested and see what the federal government does in its budget uh, on Thursday as well. And we'll continue to monitor and support the seniors uh, where and when we can. And I know you're not the Minister of Finance, but with both the federal and provincial budgets on the exact, the exact same day, generally speaking, the province would have waited for the feds to come down with their budget so we can include any additional supports that may be in place. What should people read into the fact that they're both on the same day? I I really couldn't answer that. Uh, I think it is, was truly coincidental. That's my take on it, uh, but I think the Minister of Finance might be able to uh, better answer that. I appreciate you making time for the show, Minister Abbott. Thank you. My pleasure once again. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. It's John Abbott. He's the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development, the Liberal member for St. John's East Kitty Bitty. Let's take a break. When we come back, whatever we're talking about, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Adam Stead. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Top shelf today. How about you? I'm doing great, sir. I'm just calling in now to let your uh, listening audience know that we are opening up applications for the Quinn's Rockstar Award again this year. Uh, we're one very deserving child from 
grade kindergarten to grade 12. Actually, this year is actually going to be two awards given out because the pandemic put a hold on last year. So we'll be giving out two awards this year. And the prerequisites, uh, Patty, would be that it's a child from the age of 5 to 18 that give back to their community and are ex- flowing examples of what youth should be in the province. So, I mean, this is the good news after the tragic news. Just so people know what we're talking about, Quinn's Rockstar Award was created by Adam. He's done a lot of good work, whether it be the, the playground, and I believe there's a room that was financed through some of your efforts at uh, one of the mercy shelters. But this is about Quinn Butt. So, as we know, and I really don't want to muddy the waters here, but just to give folks some context, these wars are celebrating the life of Quinn Butt, who was killed in a house fire uh, by her father, Trent, who was convicted of first-degree murder. So this is something that, you know, between Andrea Gosquin's mother and Adam and others that have really put in an incredible amount of work and effort to celebrate and remember baby Quinn. So I just wanted to give that context out. So what's the, give us a bit more idea about some of the past winners of the Rockstar Award so that folks know what it takes to be considered. Well, past award winners are, I'm going to tell you, when I say glowing examples of what youth should be in the province, it warms your heart to read these applications every year to show that these these children, like one uh, Georgia Hinks is a good example. She's done so much work down in Africa for impoverished students, uh, helping with schools, helping with supplies. You know, these. what's amazing to me, Patty, uh, which really warms my heart is, you know, every year we give away $2,500 in remembrance of Quinn and her life. And every year, without a doubt, these children give a portion, if not all of it, back into the things that they believe in. So it really just goes to show how amazing these youth are. And, you know, as you said at the beginning, you know, this was a very, you know, bad, bad situation that happened. But something such such good came out of it is just it's just amazing to me. It is to me as well. And once again, bravo to uh, you and your efforts. So what do I have to do if I want to apply and submit an application to be a Quinn Rockstar? Well, uh, I'll, you have my number there, uh, Fonz has it, so yep. if uh, anybody wants to give me a call, they can call me. Uh, we have an email, which is rememberingquinn at gmail.com, or you could check out our Facebook group, which is Quinn's Place, where we have approximately 5,000 members, So, but we were opening it up for anybody, for, again, from kindergarten to grade 12 in Newfoundland or Labrador to give back to their community. That's really what we're looking for. Somebody that goes just not in their own household, but goes back further, gives to their stu- to their school, their community, to community um, events. Just you know, just a well-rounded individual is what we're looking for. And again, this year we're giving out two prizes of twenty-five hundred dollars, which they can do whatever they seem fit. So if they want to buy candies, they can go buy candies. If they want to buy a laptop for because they're going to going to university. That's their choice. So it's a it's a very unencumbered amount of money that they can do whatever they want with so it's uh, it's exciting for sure and the good news is there's just so many young newfoundlanders and labradorians who fall into these exact characteristics that, and that's the good news here uh, adam appreciate your time this morning so everyone go to quinn's place on facebook if you want to find out more information about this year's two rockstar awards nice to have you on adam thanks a lot and i really appreciate your time patty you have a wonderful day the same to you take care bye-bye take care yeah you know when you have these horrific tragedies and I even hate to say the man's name convicted of first degree murder 
But remembering and celebrating Quinn Bot like this is just fabulous stuff. Let's go to line number one. Verna, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hiya. How are you doing? What's about you? Okay, I'm just giving the public a heads up that the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure have advertised they are looking for one position for a director of ferry operations. Yep. Uh, heads up, there is people, they are people who are applying for the job, guess what, with qualifications and experience. That's a good thing. Uh, the first name is Aaron. I got his resume here. Quite impressive. I'm just letting the people know to see, does Aaron have a running for this? To let Fury, Mr. Fury know, and Mr. Loveless, that he has applied. And in regards to... We had the Legionnaire was down for a whole week because we didn't have enough engineers. I don't see anything there looking for engineers. Uh, have we put it, putting out a new project. Uh, they're looking for engineers. Young guys want to go in for it, give them an incentive. We wouldn't have that problem. And how about if they cross-trained their employees so that they can go from boat to boat? They're not even cross-trained from one ferry to the other. Yeah, I I still don't quite uh, understand that engineer issue. Uh, Mike talked about it last week on the program. It doesn't make any sense to me that we would be so strapped to one person and one person only to be able to do this work. Well, maybe lack of management, not looking into these things, looking forward to what can happen. People do get older. They do retire. We do have to have replacements. We do have to, you know, have things in place and in motion that this, so this don't happen. Absolutely. Of course we do. Uh, anything else this morning, Verna? That's pretty well it. Okay. Appreciate the call. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So where am I going? Sue Rose, line three. Sue Rose, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, I just want to... Uh, sometimes, um, uh, as you know... Uh, sorry, I'm just getting... I'm just going to... Sometimes, as you know, I, I get on a rant because I, I um, have been helping families. That's how I volunteer my time families that are in crisis in the education system. And I, I was ranting uh, quite a bit about Royal Greenland because um, the plant that was sold, um, you know, to Greenland and the families that have worked there for, you know, <laughs> since, this, since they were born, and as all fishing families in rural communities have done, uh, we've lost our fishery and how that's tied to the education. But I, I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions um, uh, because I know your um, your wife is an educator herself, mm -hmm. and um, I know you're aware of some of the issues, but we had an issue before COVID uh, with about 10,000 kids out of about 64,000 not in school. That's increased, and since Christmas, um, uh, for example, I've heard from 87 families, and people wonder what does that mean. Well, it's, it seems that people reach out to me because my name got out there over the years but I obviously can't help I'm, I'm involved with two families now in human rights cases so I, I can't take on any more families so um, I'm seeing uh, violence increasing uh, in schools and I'm seeing there's no monitoring and when we talk about accountability I'm so I get so annoyed um, with our politicians because they do go in with good intentions, but it seems when they put a minister's hat on, and remember, I hope everyone that's listening, our politicians work for us. We are their boss. 
And when I hear some of them talking uh, down to us, being disrespectful and, and feeling like um, uh, John Hagee, Minister Hagee, saying we don't deserve the $5 million report, I become infuriated because over the seven years, I've seen families in our rural communities get poorer as companies like Royal Greenland get richer. And when we talk about impacts on the family, obviously, if a child is struggling in your family uh, because they can't go to school because it's not safe and welcoming, there's no one monitoring our schools, um, um, every person in your family is in a crisis the same way um, if your parents are struggling financially, your children are struggling. So it, it is a cycle of, of, of that keeps happening over and over. So sure. what's your concern um, with Royal Greenland, though? I'm, I'm sorry? Okay, so this is what's been happening, um, and particularly the families that have been reaching out to me. So this is what's been happening over the past few years, and I'm speaking, Patty, just generally. Obviously, I don't know much about the fishery, except that I know that our fishery, oh, since we draw in Confederation, um, every conservative and every liberal has done nothing to help rural fishermen and women uh, stay in their communities and become wealthy like they should be. Um, if you look at uh, Fogo Island and their cooperative, if you look at countries like Iceland, Norway, and I've been to some of these countries, uh, they do get it right. They are accountable to the people, and it's not about uh, you know doing things because uh, companies are... Um, are uh, influencing our politicians. <clears throat> so uh, when the two fish plants in Old Perlican started to become an issue and they were go going to be sold, um, uh, in my, you know, I started just speaking out. I think I spoke to you. I, I wrote a few emails to different government people like Steve Crocker and Ken McDonald and Seamus O'Regan. Um, why can't we, uh, as a government, why couldn't we then look at um, giving families that have worked there 20, 30, 40 years um, the opportunity to own shares in the fish plant. Because if we did that, we would have a healthy work in, working um, uh, group there and people would take pride. And uh, instead of the millions of dollars going to Greenland like it's doing, it would be going in the pockets of, of uh, families on the Bakaloo. Um, and I'll, I, what breaks my heart the most is a family that uh, were one of the first uh, trucks to ever take uh, fish from the plants up there. Uh, they can't, uh, they're not employed anymore because Royal Greenland has their own drivers, and that's their right. I don't know anything about Royal Greenland as a company except to say that it's extremely smart. So, because it did buy, buy out our fishery. So, and again, this is on the backs of when I heard Premier Fury say, well, this is a federal thing, uh, get your head out of the sand, Premier. This, is, this, this, this has been happening to our rural communities since we joined Confederation. We have m nothing much left. Um, I run a tourism business, and I could not, like I've done for years, and I started the business in 2006. I would take tours. To, we'd go to various communities on the Bacaloo. We'd come back with our lobster or crab, whatever we were looking for. We couldn't do that last year. Yeah, uh, so Royal Patty, Greenland. I'm, I'm going to stop talking. So Royal Greenland. So why did it happen? And why did the politicians let it happen? And I think Loveless was on 
I, apparently it was three men that made those decisions. So the impacts to the families here are done. So the family that reached out to me this past weekend, both parents worked at the plant, uh, I, and I don't want to be too specific because I don't want to get three children. Uh, they're just about on uh, social assistance now, and they're going to probably have to leave the plant. They're, uh, both of their two sons have not been in school much. It's, it's an extremely stressful time. Their government is bringing in immigrants. Immigrant families come to this province in desperate need of warm and welcoming environments. They have left their country not because they wanted to. So yeah. picture the situation in Alperlican with the immigrants. And uh, go ahead, Patty, I, uh, shut me up, because I, I just, I don't even know what to say with the lack of accountability the Liberals have shown, and the disrespect to the people of this province is overwhelming, because the schools are, and again, it's not the educators' fault. Sure. Uh, Royal Greenland is a, a curious case study. I'm a little bit confused as to why so many people have such a big problem with that company. They've invested pretty significantly in the province. The concern, I guess, comes with the concentration of foreign ownership inside the processing sector in particular. But unless they, if they do something like they turn their preference to only dealing with uh, fish caught in Greenland or Denmark, and they don't process any of the product here as opposed to what they need to be doing, but I don't know why they would buy a plant and not utilize it. So yeah. I, I guess the big concern is simply foreign ownership. And that's not a yeah. federal issue at all. That's a provincial issue. There's yeah. a th an independent, well, quasi-independent panel. Um, yeah. uh, Reg Anstey is the chair of that particular panel. They put forward recommendations, even though they put the caveat that governments should indeed be concerned with the concentration of for foreign ownership. Then the final yeah. decision is absolutely made in the minister's yeah. office for as to whether or not they would approve, whether it be Royal Greenland, by now Quincy or otherwise. So yeah. um, unless they yeah. do something like turn their backs on their harvesters here, I don't know what particular problem that company that specific company poses that's just where i sit yeah it does it doesn't pose any i think they're quite smart but but what's been happening since they've been here there's not a union up there so if if employees like this family uh, both he and and his wife had worked there they, they they had i think 62 years of service um she had to quit because she had some unique needs that wasn't being met and she was told there's the door so her husband followed behind her. If, you, if, if, if reporters went up and started to interview families, and again, families that are, are um, intimidated or like my father. My father had grade two education, one of the smartest men I, I ever met in my life and taught me so much. Uh, but dad, you know, it's about confidence when you're talking to people that are supposedly graduated from university. To me, education is about wisdom. But how does it tie to the education system? Well, their two sons. I mean, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not being as specific because I don't want to identify the family. They are one is in junior high and one is just entering. You know, so so again, when we talk about dropouts, we talk about children in our classrooms. You know, I presented information to the Liberal cabinet, and and I thought they were going to roll out with the social workers in primaries, with the behavior management specialists, with the occupational therapists. The high-risk kids, as you know, uh, it's a hit or a miss because of survival. Um, if you come from a family that, um, like you and your wife, you're, you know, you're well-educated, if one of your kids had ADHD or ASD, um, it wouldn't really matter what the schools, if they offered appropriate program, you, for the most part, would provide the love and nurturing at home. It's the families that really don't know um, how to do that, and, and uh, our prisons are filled with 
young people that just didn't make it. They dropped out in grade five, grade six, grade seven, and uh, brilliant people. But we teachers, for the most part, are not trained, Patty, to do uh, work with ADHD kids and ASD. And the department and the school board have got to stop playing the game of um, we are providing programs. No, we are not. We well, are not providing programs for artistic kids, and that's a given because there's, you know, I'm I'm actually involved in, I can't say too much, but okay. uh, you're right. So, so again, when we tie education, health, and justice, if our education system is broken, you brought up Gwyn Butt. Do you know Harbor Grace is one of the most violent communities in in the country? I, I didn't know, but we're asking yeah. too much of the teachers anyway. That that's yes. you know what we put put on their plate is uh, completely unmanageable and unrealistic. Yes. Uh, Sue, so yes. I have to scoot off to the break, but Thank I wish you, you well. But listen, uh, you didn't get the answer though. But privately nope. owned things happening in 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 like seniors' homes. Nope. Who private home seniors? How much money does the taxpayers pay? And who monitors the privately ran seniors? It's like education. Who monitors who monitors education? No one. And I'm assuming that's the situation with seniors homes which is a great concern for me so thank you for the opportunity patty i know i talk a lot but this is a very broken province and the liberals have sat on their butts and really i'm telling you that that it's gotten a lot worse and it's and it's not contributed to COVID. so thank you again patty appreciate your time thank you Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, James Zerr wants to talk about lockdown benefits. There's also a caller in the queue who wants to talk about the choices for youth strike. The nine folks, I think, that work at the Lily, uh, the negotiations that broke off, as far as I know. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. James, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today, buddy? Grand today. How about you? Not too bad, my buddy. Good. Uh, I'm just looking for some uh, information and some resources that I kind of seem to be coming up a bit short on. Uh, my wife works uh, as a PCA, and there before January, um, uh, well, we have a four-year-old and we have a seven-year-old. One is in uh, daycare and the uh, seven-year-old is obviously in, in elementary. Uh, there was about, I don't know how many cases, I can't even remember now how many cases, but anyway, we, we had to isolate. And where she uh, first started her new job, she was working within the three-month probationary period. Now, she's, she has exhausted, obviously, the lockdown benefit that was uh, that was available to her at the time, but uh, she wasn't qualified for the 10 sick days because she was still within the probationary period. So we don't know, like, because obviously our bills are through the roof, and this is basically what we're, we were depending on, but, like, the, the, the isolation periods, like, she used her work, it's almost like uh, within two months, like we had 50 days of isolation because the the schools and the and the daycares were shutting down that many times in between, and or the not the school, sorry, but like the the little fellow, we all had to isolate basically for like 14 days and whatever at a time. So a PCA, she's a personal so, care attendant. Is that what that stands for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, within the three months that she worked, uh, she didn't qualify for the 10 days. Um, 
sick days that the government... Uh, now, I'm trying to get a sense of this. I'm not trying to confuse you or anything. I'm, I'm trying to explain the best way that I can. So basically, the, this is what we're wondering. Like, uh, like, is there anything in place like uh, to compensate for this? Like, uh, I'm sorry if it don't make sense. No, but but the it, ten it, sick days—that's for federally regulated businesses, not for like personal care homes. Okay, that that would be okay. a provincial matter. So those ten sick days wouldn't be forthcoming to your wife anyway and so you make reference to okay. the lockdown benefit which is the only benefit yes. that continues for individuals but of course nowhere is really locked down so i don't know if anyone even yes. qualifies for this any longer and that was 300 bucks a week the period was sometime mid-october through early may of this year but you had to actually be in working and living in a region that had some definition of a lockdown yeah. order in place which there is not in this province so i don't think anybody actually qualifies for that in Newfoundland and Labrador, anyway. Yeah, I, I just think it's, uh, it's almost like it's, I don't mean to sound like it's, uh, like, you know, you're there with your hand out or type of thing, but I just think it's kind of strange that, uh, like, if you're put in these positions, especially if you're, if you've got to isolate home with, with your two children and your wife or whatever the case would be, no one's going to leave the house, obviously. Or, like, you know what I mean? Like, they can't go in anywhere if they're still, still isolating. Yeah. But all at the same time, like, you know, your lights don't hear that you know your your food bills don't hear this you know what i mean like you still got to come up the money somewhere along the lines but still for all this they want you to isolate and hope for the best that you can get through the best way that you can well like i mean there's tens of thousands of families probably a lot more than that that just can't rely on those words alone like i mean there there has to be something there for, for the parents and everything, and instead of getting an eviction notice or a, a cutoff notice or whatever the case would be, like when you're trying to, to keep ahead of it, and still for all this, when you turn around, a, a school is locked down or a, a daycare is locked down. Like in any case, okay, if there's a federal-regulated uh, federal, uh, institution, don't you think that it should be in case for the schools and the daycares as well? Because if the parents got to stay home with the children, how is... Like, you know, how is anything going to get paid? You know what I mean? Like, and government's not looking at that. Well, like, I... I, I paid, well, six okay. weeks, and then, you know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. Now, I, there is no program for support in place at this moment of time, and I guarantee you what is probably happening out there for many families is, you know, it's easy enough to say if you don't feel well, stay home. And it's easy yeah. enough to tell the child to self-isolate uh, as a student, and mom or dad has to either take some more remaining vacation days or sick days or have, runs out of any of those options. People are going to yep. work and school sick. That's inevitably yep. what's going to happen here. And, so, and, and that's exactly not good that. enough. Uh, last word, James, before I got to go to the news. Yep. Uh, well, just basically, like, uh, and, uh, and on top of that, too, and, uh, I mean, they, they got to look at the full, uh, if they could just basically, like, uh, go to the families, if they can contact the families, because, I mean, our, our four-year-old just got diagnosed with AD, a severe ADHD, plus he's autistic, and our uh, seven-year-old's ADHD as well as he's on the spectrum as well. So, I mean, the government, like, I, I know it's, it's unimaginable pressure and stress that, like, everybody's got on themselves to try to make ends meet. But still, for all of that, the companies that are relying on the, the utility bills to be paid, they, like, they just got to wait as well, or either that, we get cut off. Yeah, there's, that's a different conversation about what the utilities and the banks could be doing with their yep. clients and yep. customers. James, I'm off to the news. I wish you well. Thanks for this. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patty, buddy. Take care, man. Bye-bye. You too. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, again, Thursday's going to tell a lot of this tale. 
But already at this moment in time, like, again, I can only talk about the people that I know and their personal experience. Friends of mine, the husband and the wife, every day of their vacation days have been used up, not for vacation, but to stay home with their children. You know, whether they be told to self-isolate. They have three kids, and they've burned through every single vacation day they already they have, and it's only the 4th of April. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of the callers in the queue. We'll get to you right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to the caller, someone asked me to give a shout-out to a team. Happy to do it. Congratulations to the Pasadena Falcons senior boys basketball team. They won the 3A Provincials in their home gym over the weekend. Way to go, boys. All right, let's go to line number two. Gary, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. It's been a long, been a long time. Welcome back to the uh, show. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, a couple of things in my mind this morning. The first thing would be uh, uh, driving around the city of St. John's is getting to be a, a, a hazardous commute. Uh, people just don't get it. You know, you can't speed in school zones on 72 and 75 kilometers at 12, at 12 noon. It's unacceptable. And, but there's little to deter it. We're not seeing the police presence in those areas at the vital times that kids are getting out of school. And we need to see more patrols. Uh, you know, maybe we have a lot of cars. Maybe they're not marked. Maybe we need more marked cars that are visible and people who get the message because they're really right now they're not getting the message. Running the red lights and uh, aggressive driving is just out of control in this city. And it's time someone do something about it. I mean, I've become obsessed with just watching how bad the behavior is of so many people behind the wheel. It is a dangerous place out there. There's no doubt about it. Nothing slows you down quite like a cop car. But we shouldn't have to be fighting this uphill battle. I mean, in St. John's, you are going nowhere in a hurry. You're just not getting anywhere any quicker than me, regardless of how, um, how much you're going to change lanes all the way up and down the parkway. I'll see you at the next red light. So it's pretty crazy out there some days. Oh, that's, that's uh, you know, and that's the, rea- the reality right now. And, I mean, uh, I don't know who's responsible for gaining control of it. You know, maybe the police are just overworked with other things. Uh, but some, somewhere along the line, we have to take this serious and do something about it. I agree. But, you know, I'll get away from that part for a minute because you've had a lot of discussion on your show recently uh, on electric vehicles. Yep. And, you know, I'm been in this automotive trade 50 years and i just want to make a, a few points firstly if you got if you want an electric vehicle you're going to have to have a driveway you can't park it in the street and drag an extension cord from your house to the street so you're going to need a house with a garage most likely uh, preferably with a garage because in cold temperatures you're not going to be able to charge it outside you're not going to get the efficiency out of the charger you know and then again, will the electrical service in your home accommodate a fast charger? Now you have to go to an electrician and find out if if you if you will be allowed to put uh, that fast charger on your home. You know, how far are you going to travel between charges? 
well, they're not for everybody, but I, I think what we're doing is we're putting up all of the problems before we even talk about the solutions and the improvements in the technology and the move towards a solid-state battery away from lithium-ion or lithium and polymer batteries. So there are, I think the changes are being made in the industry. Is there any further opportunity to improve the efficiency or the emissions of an internal combustion engine? I don't know. Uh, will an electric vehicle accommodate somebody in Labrador? Maybe not. Uh, for folks who make a long-distance commute uh, on a regular basis, would it be ideal for them? Maybe not. But that's the issue here is it's not for everybody oh. the way it's currently st uh, structured and the infrastructure that's not in place for widespread use. But improvements and expanding infrastructure is part and parcel with just the changing landscape, I suppose, Gary. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not saying that there won't be a place down the road probably 20 years on or 15 years on, you know, Right now, lithium batteries can be very unstable, especially in, in cold weather, extreme cold, or extreme heat. You know, they've had a number of fires with these vehicles with, uh, due to uh, severe temperature changes, or even if the uh, batteries are come under pressure, they can explode. You know, I'm not saying that everything is perfect right now or that everything is bad, but we have to look at the future. Now, lithium loses its efficiency uh, starting around year six, right? You're after studying that, I'm sure. I have. So they start to lose their efficiency around year six. The replacement of the battery could very well cost more than the value of the car. Now, that's a, that's known. And I'll tell you, boy, that's what that's happening. Lithium is really, right now, in short flight. And even going, if you go to the battery manufacturers, they're hoping that everybody who got an old phone or an old computer will turn it in so that they can re-salvage uh, that lithium that's in those batteries. Because you have to remember that China has the main technology for, for processing the raw material, right? They also control the main source of cobalt, which is mined in the Congo. And the cobalt is absolutely necessary to put in a cobalt battery to keep it from catching fire and overheating. So, you know, I don't think we're close yet to saying, yes, we're fully electrical. But no one says we are, though. Yeah, yeah you know, when you look at... The likes of Boeing, who were saying we, we're going to have not have electric cars, we're going to have hybrid. We're, we're going to have hybrid air air traffic airplanes. When you look at Toyota, Honda, all gone hybrid vehicles. Why? Because they know this is a problem, and it's going to be a problem in the future. You know, is this? Are we going to end up with uh, lithium and cobalt being the next decider if China is going to annex? Taiwan, the same as the oil with the rest of uh, Europe, because if they're holding the eight, if they're holding, you know, the, uh, the necessary tools to make this work properly, what's going to be the cost? If you are looking at this, if you've been looking at the raw product, uh, say the cost of cobalt, where it's gone in cost in the last couple of years. Do you think the price of the batteries is going to come down? Not likely. I think they will. I, I think it's inevitable. And plus, Toyota says they're going to have electric vehicles with uh, solid-state batteries by 2024, I think is what I read. And also, hybrids are going to be the thing, aren't they? You know, 100% EVs, I don't know. I'm pretty sure the vast majority of these vehicles that will be sold will be hybrids, which will make it more effective and efficient and available to folks who have different needs for the range that they travel and the frequency of long commutes and stuff. So I think that's what's going to happen. And the... The whole life cycle cost issue, 
and this is something that I've tried to read and to understand. If I'm talking about a 10-year window, uh, to get into a hybrid versus, you know, just say an SUV, you know, so get a RAV4 hybrid versus a regular old SUV, the cost for operating is still an extraordinary savings in the electric vehicle. Extraordinary. And plus, when a battery wears out, we're also talking about how long can you drive an internal combustion engine vehicle for however many. Say, does anybody get a couple hundred thousand kilometers out of a vehicle anymore? I'm not so sure. So I think there's you know, still a life cycle operational cost and environmental cost where I still see an upside in a hybrid. For our, We have two vehicles. My wife and I both own a vehicle. For right. the one that we'll need to travel a little bit further or to go to Marble Mountain or whatever, we'll have that vehicle. For the one that's simply to go to work and zip around town and go to the grocery store, we're going to get a hybrid. I'm pretty sure we are. We're already started looking. Right. Yeah, and, you know, I'm saying is they're not for everybody, and that was the whole, the whole reason sure. for my call. It's to it, it make people aware of what they're getting into. Don't get into something that you can't afford. And that you, 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 you know, it's going to be out of your budget in a few years on, or you're going to buy it and find out you got to redo your house to, uh, to run it. Well, of course, you, know? you got to know what you're getting yourself into. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, uh, getting back to where, where we're going, you know, uh, our government—I uh, hate to say this—but our government members are pushing green with all, of and at the same time, they're going to all the wall wanting to. Develop Aiden I mean, give me a break. I mean, we're either for it or we're against it. You know, it's possible. It's, they should start putting our residents first. We are zero carbon pretty well here. Why should we be paying a frigging uh, tax, carbon tax? You know, we need all the petroleum we can get. We got uh, mining where equipment operates on oil. Some of, it, oh, some of it operates on the, uh, the electric grid uh, on-site. Some of it operates on the electrical grid on-site. Yeah, some. Not, not, not very much of it. You know, if you get in remote areas and you haven't got electrical, you're going to have electrical through a generator. Well, what's going to drive the generator? It's oil, right? Every fishing boat that goes out to sea needs petroleum products. Every ferry that drives people back and forth to the islands and uh, needs uh, petroleum. If it's got electric motors, it still needs petroleum to drive the generators. Every cruise ship needs petroleum to drive the generators to drive the electric motors. And so on and so on and so on. So there is still a need, there will be a need for uh, petroleum products for probably the next 15, 20 or 30 years. And I think we, the go- our government should support us based on this. I don't know why the insinuation and the pushback I get on electric vehicles I find to be curious because we're pretending that nothing will improve and no no additional infrastructure and yes there's going to be the need for certain types of vehicles whether it be in the agricultural sector or what have you or maybe in mining or whatever where there's still going to be some use for oil which is why I think people are continue to be proponents of say for instance Beta Nord uh, so uh, again it's not a flip the switch and all of a sudden everything has changed it's over. No. no one's ever going to drive a gas-powered vehicle. No one, I don't, well, certainly I don't say it, but I don't know anybody who says it. No, but uh, that's, uh, that's a part of what I'm saying. Oops. But the other side of this, how many vehicles are on the road today, gas-driven vehicles or petroleum-driven vehicles, 
How long are they going to be on the road? We're looking at vehicles in other places of the world that are 30, 40 years old. So there's going to be a need for clean petroleum to service those people. Maybe that Bay North could be looking after Britain and France and all those areas with clean fuel as opposed to the fuel from Russia. But that's not a government issue, though. Why don't we capitalize on those, on that? That would be up to the company, right? That's not up to the government. Well, I mean, who owns the rights to it? Are are you saying we don't own the rights to Bay North? Well, nobody owns anything yet until they start producing, and at which point we will, apparently, the government's going to stick with the process of having a 10% equity stake. But that doesn't mean we get to tell them what they have to do with the oil. No. No, you're right there. Yeah, now that could change, I suppose. It certainly would be in our best interest, I think Equinor's best interest kind of rules the day when it comes to the amount of capital investment they'll put into the project. But I guess we'll find out in short order whether or not that's actually going to be a producing uh, offshore oil field. Appreciate the time, Gary. Thanks for the call. Yep. Yeah, I hope it works out for us because, you know, like I say, our, we depend on probably more than any other place in the world for, for our fishing and our transportation. You know, our cost of goods going up. Every time something changes, it goes up. We had to put a control on it somewhere. Anyway, it's been great talking to you again. All the best. Have a great summer. You too, Gary. Stay in touch. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go ahead and take that break. Uh, We'll talk about the choices for youth right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. How are you doing today, Perry? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Oh, not bad. <clears throat> Again, I got a couple of questions about... Uh, how the kids at the Lily are being handled. I'm just curious. Never We never heard publicly from Choices, the management side of Choices yet on this. But, you know, the kids are uh, being housed at a hotel here in St. John's. They're out of the, the you know, they've been taken out of the Lily for no reason. They, they, you know, they're not picketing the Lily down there, so there's no reason for them and kids to be displaced in a hotel. But it's not and, the location of the picket. It's the fact that the workers responsible for the programs and the... Uh, caring for the children are on the picket line. Of course, Patty, but sir, who uh, the management got to be taken care of no matter if they're, where they're placed to. And uh, being, in, being in a hotel and told, you know, down to Lily they're getting 24, 24-7 care. These are vulnerable kids that need 24-7 care or they wouldn't be in the Lily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they're getting home-cooked meals at the Lily. They're eating junk food at these hotels. They're after 8 o'clock... There's no support there for them. They're told that they ha- if they have any issues to call the uh, crisis line. Like, these are kids that are dealing with, you know, 
mental health issues from probably suicidal thoughts to addictions to whatever else is going on in their lives. And after 8 o'clock, you're told to, if you have an issue, call the health line, call the crisis line. I don't think that's good enough. This is a heavily funded program from the government, federal and provincial government. So, like, where's the government to on this? These are vulnerable kids. Right, but what are you, what are you, suggest- Sorry, what are you suggesting be done? Well, they need to get this resolved, ASAP. These are essential workers. I think what's going on is a lot of dirty, dirty politics is happening between management and these, uh, you know, these this small group of workers for choices that decided to join a union. And and, and the only ones are getting hurt is the, is the kids. How come management hasn't been on your program or or CBC or any other program telling us and talking about what their issues are? The union even offered. To, to pay for arbitration to try to get this solved because they understand, the union understand that these kids need these workers. Yeah, I think everyone realizes that, and that's where my main concern would be, of course, is with the children. But I think we tried to reach out to the management team last week at Choices. I don't even know if they replied, but uh, I'll check with Dave Williams no. when he returns tomorrow. Because I feel like, I, I, I actually feel like they're trying to, you know, they're, they're, they're scared to death that there's, there's, there's another can of worms going to get open here. Like, you know, how much how much is Sheldon Pollitt making down the choices field? And I, I know that has nothing to do with, with the kids or two, but if we're talking about a few dollars to get these workers back and, and to take care of these vulnerable kids, I think it's time for him to get on your program or another program and let us know what his issues are, what he thinks, you know, the problem is. To me, it sounds like, and, and I'm a union worker, not with I have nothing to do with choices for you, and I just feel like there's a wedge being the ones who choose to 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 join a union here in this organization. I think choices the management are trying to put a wedge between who's not in the union and who's in the union, and we're we're losing sight of what really matters here is to get those kids back at the lily and get them taken care of. No because argument. Something happens. Yeah, no argument here. I know I did ask Jerry Earl about. Liability, what have you, it remains with choices. So, you know, if they're not getting the type of monitoring or oversight or care or programs or services or supports or whatever while they're residing in a hotel, if anything goes wrong, that's on choices. So, and that's a question that we've asked, we asked of uh, Mr. Earl when he was on the show when the, I guess it was on day one of the strike. I uh, appreciate the time. Hopefully both sides and get back to the table because you can't settle it in silence. And you're right, Patty. It falls back on choices if anything happens, but also it falls back on the government. The government are funding you know, 90% of the choices of this program. And they're out spending, you know, thousands of dollars of my tax dollars and your tax dollars to put these kids into a hotel and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars over the last year in lawyer's fees. And the money they, they, the money they spent on these lawyer's fees could have had this, could have had this solved in, in seconds. Yeah, although, once again, I don't know how much involvement we want government in establishing budgets for any of these not-for-profits or charities or whatever. You know, sometimes I think we... We want a little bit too much government involvement, to be honest, because where does that end? Uh, appreciate the time. I'm off to the news. Stay in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, Trevor wants to talk about the virus, and then we're going to talk about rehabilitation to get back to work, I think. All right. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Trevor, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, thank you. How are you? Good. You have a good weekend? Not too bad, thanks. Nice and quiet. Uh, uh, yeah, so this past weekend, we just found out we got COVID in the house. Oh, no. First, Yeah, first time in, what, two and a half years. So, uh, yeah, the wife's got, like, a headache, um, sinus issues, and... The daughter's got a fever. My, we went for a, we did rapid test on Saturday. And so we all did one. It was my son, myself, the daughter, and Jen. And Sarah's came back positive on the rapid. So that's when everything kind of got triggered. And they, they, Jen and Sarah took off for PCR and they, they came back positive. But it was weird that Jen's rapid test was negative, but then when she got a PCR, it was positive. Well, there's long been and, concerns with the accuracy of the P, of the rapid test, of course. Right. Yep. Um, so I got a PCR yesterday. My son's getting one today. Results are not back yet. Um, but, yeah, I just found that kind of correlation between the PCR and the rapid. It's the first time we've experienced it, even though we have uh, – enough rapid tests here in the house it's like candy in october <laughs> because the children got them at school um well my wife works in healthcare. okay so she gets provided with the rapid tests like we get a lot of them because um, she has to do them pretty much every time before she goes to a shift she has to confirm that on a rapid that she's uh, negative but anyway so things change this weekend and uh cancel a lot of plans but so we all stayed home, isolated. I'm not feeling great today, but I'm still waiting for my uh, my results to come back in. I got a runny nose and my chest hurts. I had pneumonia before. Um, but at least we got to play a lot of music on the weekend. <laughs> That's always helpful. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, uh, Fonts mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about some disinformation, maybe on social media or what have you, as it pertains to the virus. Did you want to say something about that? On social media? Yeah. No, I thought that's what I said uh, in my queue here. Oh no, no. Okay. Um, no. Um, actually, I was going to say that uh, before we found out we had COVID on Saturday, uh, I took my son out and uh, spoiled him with uh, a new set of symbols for his drum kit. Nice. Yeah. So we spent. Uh, all day Saturday and Sunday, learning the first three line or songs off of uh, Queen the Game. So we learned how to play the game, Dragon Attack, and uh, another one bites the dust. Dragon Attack is an awesome deep cut. Oh yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that's off the yeah. game, right? Yep. So yeah, I play the bass with him, and it keeps his timing better because if uh, if he plays by himself, his uh, his beats per minute are all over the place. But as long as I run along with him on the bass guitar, and we've been doing the Queen on the weekend, and yep. Well, that's why they call it a rhythm section. Exactly. Anyway, I appreciate the time, Trevor. I wish you and the family a speedy recovery. Okay, I'm going to get back to the curling. Yeah, good man. Uh, two more on top of I, is good, uh, Pardon me, is Guju play twice again today? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know He's either. Right now they're playing Netherlands right now. Cool. And Netherlands are looking pretty sharp. I'll tune in when I get home later on this afternoon. I appreciate the time, Trevor. Take good care of yourself.
All right, you too. All right, right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know what? I haven't even had a test yet. Um, And people will continue to ask questions as to why so many people in the province who want a rapid antigen test have to go buy a kit versus what's happening in other provinces where you simply walk into a variety of stores, you go to the coffee shop and pick one up. Okay, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the employment facilitator at the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work. That's Mitchell Drydeck. I think I said that right. Good morning, Mitchell. You're on the air. Hey there, Patty. You did say that right. Thank you very much. It's, it's a rare thing. Happy to do it. <laughs> Lucky to have to pronounce it properly. What's on your mind this morning, Mitchell? So I've got something a little bit more uplifting for you. Great. Um, i got a little script here, too. So, um, like you said, my name is Mitchell from the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work. Um, so what we do at CCRW, it's a disability and equity-focused nonprofit on a national scale, we influence government policy and help people with disabilities find a meaningful employment in, in a ton of ways. Um, and one of the ways, and, and the way I guess I wanted to chat with you about, is um, I facilitate the Youth the Future program with my coworker. And it's a 22-week pre-employment program, and it's broken up into two chunks. Um, so the first eight weeks is employment skills training, where the youth complete all kinds of trainings and certifications, such as first aid, customer service, anything else that might work for their future employment endeavors. Think like pet first aid if they want to be a groomer. And then the final 14 weeks is um, supposed to be like a supportive employment arrangement where we work with the employers to secure jobs for our youth that are inclusive and accessible. And we support the employer and um, the employee kind of in that whole situation. Um, so I got a couple asks for you today, Patty, if, if that's all right. Fire away. Awesome. So first, um, we're looking, we're, we're at the stage in our current cohort, so our group of youth, um, where they finish their pre-employment program and we're looking for employers to partner with. Um, so ultimately, it's just any kind of employer in St. John's of the Avalon who are looking to diversify their teams and looking to take advantage of the incentives that CCRW provides. Um, and a couple of those things are employment support, so that would be me, um, disability education for staff, accommodations implementation and funding for um, local businesses, um, as well as a 75% wage subsidy for 14 weeks for the employer. Um, And the second ask is that we're recruiting for our next cohort. So um, we're looking for youth with a self-identified disability within the ages of 15 to 30 to take part in our 22-week pre-employment program. And that is my spiel for you there, Patty. What kind of partners do you currently have here in the province? Pardon? What, do you have any partners already that you're working with here in the province, companies or organizations? Yes, we do, actually. So one of the big ones in St. John's is actually Habitat for Humanity in, uh, in St. John's, the ReStore. Um, they're an excellent, inclusive employer, um, as well as, like, Downtown Comics. Um, there's, there's all kinds of, like, inclusive employers out here in St. John's and um, that, are, that are super happy to work with us. And a lot of them, we've been doing it for, for quite a while. So I think the support we provide works. Um, and, yeah, we, we do have some roots in the community. But, you know, with, with the new cohorts coming in, we have different youth with different interests. So we're always trying to get more, um, you know, contacts in St. John's just so we can pull on them and say, you know what, like I have a youth interested in going into security um, who already has the training and the education. Um, so we're looking to set them up with a job, you know? Sounds good. So for anyone who would like to get involved or find out more, what do you want them to do? Um, honestly, just shoot us an email. Um, 
So the address for that would be YTF St. John's at CCRW.org. CCRW.org. Okay, so give us that one more time out loud because I, I barely got a chance to pick up my pen. YTF St. John's? At CCRW.org. Appreciate the time this morning, Mitchell. Keep us in the loop. Yes, of course. Thank you very much for your time too, Patty, and uh, good luck with everything. Same to you. Thanks, Mitchell. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Mitchell Dry- Drydeck is the Employment Facilitator with the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work. Just before we get to the break, I want to give a shout-out and congratulations to the U18 AAA Female Eastern Icebreakers. They won the Provincials over the weekend out in Cornerbrook. They're going to represent the province at the upcoming Atlantic Championships. That's at PEI from April 21st to 24th. Congratulations to the girls. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Bob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it, Bob. Good. I'm calling this morning with uh, the topic of regionalization. Okay. And, uh, I'd, I'd like to lead into it, if I could, by talking about the the television and media appearances that Mr. Parsons made last week, Minister Parsons, concerning the deal with Tesla and Valley Inco. And he was waving his red flag about all that this was going to mean to Newfoundland. And uh, in the meantime... Uh, the province, four or five months ago, the province of Quebec received a multi-millions of dollars from the Green Energy Plan to to set up a battery plant for vehicles and, of course, rechargeable batteries. And just a week or 10 days ago, there was another big announcement that the same sort of a setup was being done in, in Ontario. So... Uh, Newfoundland being a place where supposedly all these metals that have are required for these batteries. Uh, Newfoundland has, has probably got more of those ingredients than any place else in the world. And rather than chase this industry or this chance to have many jobs in, in Newfoundland, uh, this government is going in another direction. They're going back to trying to collect more monies from the few individuals that are left here. In, in, and um, that brings me into regionalization, where they're now going to try to tax uh, all the people who are living outside of municipal boundaries in Newfoundland and collect property taxes. For just, just before we get to that, what's your point regarding battery plants elsewhere? So I know we do indeed have the mineral riches in Labrador in particular if we're talking about uh, cobalt, uranium and otherwise. So you're suggesting that, like many people talk about, is that if you have the product, why not do the secondary processing, in this case have a battery uh, facility in built in Labrador? Is that what you were suggesting? I just want to make sure I'm on the right, pa- right page. Ab- absolutely. Like... Obviously, the monies were there from the Green Energy Plan to set these these places up. So 
while we were asleep at the wheel here, places like Quebec and Ontario were reaching out and, and setting up these, getting these huge amounts of money to set up these plants when really it could have been done here in Newfoundland or in Labrador. There's nothing that says that we can't, still. Well, still, but there's only so much to go around in every situation, isn't there? And if, if, if the majority of money is already spent in other places, it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to, to get it here. So that, that again, like we're already the heavy, heaviest taxed people in the country. We pay the most for hydro of anybody in the country. We pay the, almost the, the most for gasoline of any place in the country. We certainly pay the most money for booze of any place in the country. Yeah, we're not the heavily, so now, most heavily taxed jurisdiction in the country, though. Um, well, but anyway, we certainly pay a significant amount of tax. So I won't argue with that. Yes. And so now we got a government here now, which is coming back now. And their newest way to, to raise more funds... Uh, is to go back out into all the communities around this island who have existed for since before this place was even part of Canada. And and most of the grants in the areas I know where I come from were, were grants from the English government. It had nothing to do with the with the provincial or the federal. But now this 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 provincial government is going back out into the communities and going to set up another level of government as if we didn't as if we needed that. We've already got five or six different levels of government. Now they're going to set up another level of government to collect property taxes from people who and properties that have never been taxed before. Like, absolutely insane. But that's not the province going to uh, get any money from that. We're the only province in the country where the provincial government does not see a stream of revenue coming from property taxes. So that won't be going to the province. Oh? Yeah. I mean, th- that's actually quite curious to be the only province that the provincial government doesn't get any monies from property taxes collected. So whatever the increase in a property tax is for one region or another, one county system or another, that money will simply just go for managing the day-to-day operations in those areas, not to the province. It's going to be another level of government. So you've got another level of government employees and and, and, and more more money in the system. So... <laughs> what's going to go back to the to to the communities in this out of this tax is going to be next to nil in my opinion this is this is another make work project as far as i'm concerned there's a couple of areas where it probably be, probably will be a meaningful way to look at what the future holds. For instance, you know, the local service districts, that's a really tricky piece of business because they automatically rejected the thought because the concept was pay more for less. And why should I? Fair enough. But even if you look at the incorporated municipalities, there's 275. Uh, I think 78% of those have a population of 1,000 or fewer. And with what we know about the declining population in some of these communities and the aging demographic, before long, there's going to be fewer people paying for the same level of service, consequently paying more tax. So if you collaborate or cooperate or share costs across some of these regions, it might be the only thing that we can do. You know, I'm not going to suggest that it'll work for every single part of the province and every single community and every single individual, but somewhere down the line, it's probably going to be force-fed on us based on numbers. Well, there's there's probably no doubt that there's increases in every every level of, of taxation, but I think what's happening here now is is it, it's kind of I would like to say it's kind of a sneaky way of doing it. I think the the, the minister here, municipal affairs minister, is, is probably looking for a feather in her hat for one, 
And number two, uh, uh, these these communities have existed for hundreds of years, and and are, are I know of the community that I'm come from. They've got along for hundreds of years. They all pay their own way. They all pay their own water, their own septic systems, and and they got a, a few fees set up now for for um, for t- uh, garbage and so on. And and really, other than the fact that the Department of Highways comes and clears the road in the winter, they're not getting anything else from government. And I'm sure that there's enough collected from the tax tax base already, income tax base already, that that's covered. That's that's something that's not costing the government anything other than it would anywhere in, in the province or anywhere in, 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 in the municipalities, for example. There's a main road that goes through every municipality that's cleared by the by the Department of Highways, right? So, yeah, I mean, certainly you're going to need a lot more in the way of details before any area thinks it's a good idea. But at this moment, I think we're a little bit short on detail. And so consequently, we're all playing the same type of game here. Maybe that's not the right word. You know, we're putting forward the hypotheticals, and that's not helping either. And I think th- the whole conversation got off to a funny kind of start. When it was only incorporated municipalities involved in the working groups, that left out every single LSD. And consequently, we've got a lot of confusion based on scanty details, so I'm not even sure which way is up or down anymore, to be honest. Yes, and, and still now, to this day, there's a lot of them being left out. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And But what I'd like to say in closing, because I know your your time is is valuable too is that in this report that i read and i went right through it cover to cover me too uh, good and uh, like this has been like if, if people think that they don't have enough time it's gone too far now think again because the talks of this have been ongoing for 50 years so it's never too late to get out there talk to your member talk to patty daly talk to other forms of media and do a little noise making about this situation because I, I think this is something that's going to sneak right up on us if we don't shout loud. Fair enough, Bob. We should always get involved as the taxpaying public. That is for sure. Good to have you on the show, Bob. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we are out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk tomorrow. Bye-bye.